Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Many moons ago, I ran a wine bar, and some of my favorite wines to pour by the glass were those from Leilun and Populous Winery. These two wineries are run by Chant Angulian and Diego Roig, a couple of UC Davis grads who met in school and source organic fruit from old vineyards in various parts of California. What I always loved about pouring their juice by the glass was how easy it made it for me to talk with guests about minimal intervention wine. Chant and Diego focus on thoughtful farming and take the natural wine adage of nothing added, nothing taken away very seriously. And there's no pretension to their wines. They're just honest-to-goodness, tasty juice. Over the summer, Chant and Diego created a BIPOC mentorship program with the goal of diversifying the winemaking industry. For today's episode, I wanted to check in and hear how those efforts to make the natural wine scene more inclusive are going. Uh, We also talk about dealing with smoke taint, collaborating with multi-generational farmers, and the future of organic farming in California. Uh, For logistics sake, uh, the first voice you hear after mine will be Chant's, and then the next person to talk is Diego. Let's just jump right in. Y'all are in the middle of some rain, right? Yeah, definitely. So we had, you know, it's funny, it rained almost all while I was asleep last night. So I still have to check the uh, cumulative inches to see where we're at. But the next week or so is going to be pretty wet. Yeah, much needed. I saw Sonoma got, um, in some parts of Sonoma, got over two inches, Sonoma County. Uh, so yeah, we really, we really needed, we were getting a little worried there. It was actually kind of warm uh, about a week ago and starts to get a little nerve wracking when when you're just about to begin pruning and you're already thinking about bud break. <laughs> That's wild. How was, how was harvest last year for y'all? I know that there were some pretty gnarly fires going on all over kind of the West coast, but uh, how was everything for y'all specifically? Yeah, it was definitely a super challenging and interesting harvest. Uh, hopefully one that we don't have to really <laughs> deal with again. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll see, I guess, um, you know, thing, it was kind of, setting up to be an early harvest again because last year was pretty pretty dry and it was pretty warm and um then there were these really unseasonable lightning storms that took place just like to the north and east of napa and that started what they called the august complex fire and so i was actually in napa getting the air conditioning on our truck like fixed and I was outside the little, um, you know, the mechanic shop and I was looking up to the north and I see this huge cloud and it looked like, I don't know, a mushroom cloud or something. And I was just like, all right, either like nuclear annihilation starting or this is some crazy wildfire that just like is coming. And so then, you know, literally the next day is when the smoke starts coming down and, you know, even down in the Bay Area, it's like, it's it's hazy, it's hard to breathe, you know, the air index is rough. Yeah, the photos I saw of like Golden Gate Bridge of the Bay Bridge, like it looked apocalyptic. It was wild. Yeah, totally. So I mean, that was a rough and then it was just one fire after the next, after the next, after the next. And it was it felt like, you know, I don't even remember how many weeks that was going on, but you know, you're locked in your house, like you're trying not to be outside. But then at the same time, you know, with dealing with the social distancing and, you know, kind yeah. of COVID stuff, it was just super wild, you know. The the fermentation and everything, the cellar is still in Orinda, right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So down in the East Bay, kind of near yeah. Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco area. And so um, pretty, pretty much right away, like we kind of started thinking back to we've had some experience with wildfires um, in Mendocino County. Previous in previous years, um, the first big fire was like 2017 in Napa and Sonoma, but that was after we already harvested, so we didn't have too much of an impact. But in 2018, there were a lot of fires in Mendocino County prior to the harvest, and we were more or less spared, um, except for one vineyard that was really close to one of the fires, and that had a little, little bit of um, like a smoke influence on it. So. We just started digging into a lot of whatever scientific literature was out there. You know, there's been a lot of research in Australia, but then also as a result of those 2018 fires. So really just trying to make a game plan and adjust to the happenings of 
the heart, you know, these conditions as they were changing, as we were seeing things, because, you know, we don't have the answers and you're trying to like make plans and decisions that are going to affect the wines, you know, for the next year or yeah. so. And, and you're kind of like blindfolded or you're trying to figure out and do the best you can, but it's always. Yeah. So like, what were the biggest lessons you learned from those previous fires? Um, so for me, I think one of the biggest experiences I drew on was my first year working as an intern or first year in the wine industry, I was working as an intern in Anderson Valley up in Mendocino County. And there were again, big fires back in 2008. And we made, you know, high-end Pinot, some white wines, you know, Alsatian stuff, and then some rosés. And they, again, at that point, 2008, there wasn't a strong understanding of how fires affected it. And so they said, let's just continue on as normal. All the white wines were fantastic and like didn't taste any smoke or anything. And all the red wines that were macerated were just hammered. Like, really? Really smoky, you know, ashtray, campfire, all that stuff. And so, you know, we kind of took that to heart because there's certain specific, you know, chemical compounds, these like guaiacanols or cyclic phenols, you know, not to get too much into the weeds. Um, but they're, the thing is that they, they, they're bound to like the skins and also the sugar in, in the grapes. And so, you know, that's good in one way in that um, you could do something like make rosé or white wine. And then the those smoke compounds don't get into the juice. Hmm. But then it's tough because since they're not, you know, they're bound up, you can't just say like wash them off or something yeah. like that. And so we almost kind of immediately took the approach that, hey, let's be a little more conservative. Like let's in, in areas where we're worried about the smoke taint that are kind of in closer proximity to the fires, let's not mess around. Like let's we're gonna make rose or like maybe very short maceration wines because our thing our thought tasting that one lot of wine from 2018 that was smoky you know it tastes good and is interesting it's kind of like um maybe pais or yeah i was gonna say like some cacique maravilla or you know louis antoine lute some of that pais stuff the yeah modelings yeah yeah totally i think Diego, you can add on that in a second um but like that's good and that's interesting and like that's cool if we have maybe a couple hundred cases of that but <laughs> you know like, like you know thousands of cases of smoky wine we're like oh, okay not ideal i think you know we can with rosé or we can blend stuff you know and, and make it something that's good and i think that's what's cool about in the realm of low intervention natural wine um you know people aren't like thinking oh i need this 96 point wine to like buy it you know mm -hmm. it's like if our Cabernet Merlot blend this year is rosé and we release it earlier, like people are still going to want to drink it. You know, it's not going to be just categorically denying it. So that's cool. And I think like that's what's great about having consumers that are more open is that they're accepting and being like, well, that's the vintage. So this is what the wine's going to be like. And that's that's actually a positive, not necessarily a negative. And, and another positive, I think, was that we in the process of, you know, assessing whether or not we wanted to make a bunch of smoky wine, which we decided that we didn't, we, you know, then we looked at, well, how can we get creative and what can we do with these, with these grapes that are coming in? So Sean kind of hit on it a little bit already. We did like a lighter, we did some like shorter maceration time um, red wines. So, you know, maybe doing, maybe letting the grapes sit on the skins for like 24 hours or 36 hours and then pressing it off. So getting a little bit of color, but, not too much extraction, right? Um, but then we also, you know, we we made more, we're making a little bit more pet nap this year than, than maybe we would have otherwise. And maybe some from, again, from, from varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon, which, which that'll be totally new for us and that's exciting. Uh, we also are making a Frizzante uh, style wine this year too. So, so taking that and- What grape are you using for that Frizzante? Uh, that's a good question. John, um, you- yeah, it's it's a blend of um, uh, Syrah, uh, Zinfandel, and then a little bit of uh, yep. yeah, yeah, Syrah in yeah. Cabernet Sauvignon. The, the the Cabernet Sauvignon was is was rosé um, that we kind of delayed the fermentation on um, until recently, and that was just by keeping the juice really cold. And then we slowly we let that juice kind of warm up, and 
after harvest was over, when we had a little more time to breathe, because right in the right when we were in the thick of harvest, I mean, I think we harvested grapes um, almost two weeks straight uh, because we did make a decision about halfway through harvest that with the way the fires were, how they were just not letting up. And, and also it was really hot too, uh, that, you know, the grapes are getting, achieving levels of ripeness that were beyond what we were comfortable with. And so we really felt like we needed to just start bringing everything in. But yeah, so again, you know, playing with blending and maybe blending some white wines in with some of our reds and, you know, kind of getting more creative and making these different styles of wine, I think could actually pay some really cool dividends down the road for us and have allowed us to kind of like expand on on kind of what we were doing already. And again, Sean, as Sean mentioned too, just, you know, having consumers who are really curious about wine and are curious about different flavor profiles and different blends and not not really, you know, being stuck in a box of like what you have to make. Uh, I think that's really liberating for us. Hell yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. If you're able to like set aside the social, political and environmental um, consequences of, you know, with these huge fires and, and like pandemic and everything. It's the end of the world, but we get to make some yeah. really badass frizzante. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It kind of forces you to be more creative and, and yeah. do different stuff, which is really again, kind of fun, but obviously terrifying at the same time. <laughs> That's wild. Well, before we get any further along, do you guys want to introduce kind of like the difference between Leilun and Populous um, for listeners that maybe aren't familiar with kind of the binary there that you guys have? Yeah, definitely. You know, early on, Diego and I, we came back from um, living and working in, in abroad in, in Europe and um, a little bit Diego's in New Zealand. And really, we had a goal of wanting to you know, grow the grapes for the wines um, that we made, you know, who really some of the, our favorite producers were these like strict vigneron is what the French term for that is. And, you know, we set out to start doing that. And we realized that without, you know, equipment, a crew, um, a reputation or anything, people weren't going to let us farm their vineyards. And so populace kind of arose out of us searching, looking for vineyards to farm, but then meeting these really amazing multi-generation farmers that have vines that were planted, you know, dating back a hundred plus years even. And so we realized we'd never have the chance to, you know, lease or, or farm those grapes. Um, and so we decided to kind of buy the grapes from them because, you know, the fruit was amazing, but also allowed us to kind of develop a relationship with the growers and, and learn from them. And so that's where we started the, the populous wines was this idea of like the negotiant kind of wines. And then with the, the Leilun, slowly and surely we started, you know, with a half acre vineyard in someone's backyard. The next year we got like a four acre Cabernet and Merlot vineyard, and then kind of slowly grew things little by little. And as we started, you know, we didn't have a ton of grapes in those. So we really wanted to make more serious, longer aged, deeper, you know, more kind of age worthy wines. You know, so that was really this separation. Um, but slowly, as we got more and more surface, um, we realized, you know, we had more grapes to make and we could make wines from the Leilun, you know, the, our farm stuff in a more kind of playful and fresh style. Um, because it's funny, you know, if people would come and taste wines in the cellar and we'd be like, oh, here, try this, you know, Merlot from Napa. And you know, just after harvest in the springtime or something, it's like really fresh and fruity and bright. They're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, when are you guys going to sell it? And we're like, oh, we'll sell it in three years when it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it tastes old and like, you know, is weird. And, you know, for a specific subset of, you know, it's it's really has depth and is interesting. Well, I always, I always love to tell the story that your Merlot Cabernet that you guys have from Carneros is like one of my like all time faves. I can't remember where that fruit specifically in Carneros came from, whether it was on the Sonoma or Napa side, but that was like my jam. Like I loved that. Yeah, so I think much. that uh, that it comes from the Sonoma side. Um, and uh, I think that's something that Sean and I, we've always been drawn to these kind of slightly more serious wines, like and ageable wines. Um, and, and truthfully, you know, we just didn't have a lot of uh, reference points in California for, you know, like lower intervention style wines that were, have been, that were aged for a very long time. Um, and so, you know, for the most part, we were looking to producers in Europe uh, for kind of inspiration and, and kind of like proof of concept, I guess, if you will. Um, but, you know, 
a lot of it was us thinking about, you know, looking at vineyards that maybe were underrepresented or underappreciated. I'm coming from regions where maybe the grape wasn't necessarily in in style anymore. You know, I mean, like Sonoma Carneros, for example, you know, nowadays is um, is a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay kind of spot. You know, I mean, there's I'd say over 90 percent of the vineyards in that in Sonoma Carneros are either Pinot or Chardonnay. But, you know, lo and behold, we find a Cabernet Vineyard and a Merlot Vineyard. And truthfully, those vineyards are perfectly suited to that region if you want to make a lower alcohol, higher acid wine. Uh, and for us, those are two key factors in making a wine that can, that's ageable. Um, you know, we looked to a lot of wines from California from the 60s and 70s. And, you know, what is it about those wines? If you, you know, if you get a chance to drink one of those wines now, which Sean and I have had a chance to do a handful of times, there's so much life and energy in, in a lot of those wines. Um, and really the overarching, like, theme or characteristic of those wines is they have just incredible acidity and they're not and they're not overly alcoholic and um, and so you know we for us like those are some key components for having allowing a wine to age uh, appropriately and um, and that's why we really you know that that was part of the thing was could we could we make a lower intervention style wine from California that that is ageable but then at the same time we also love these fresher style wines, you know? So how do we, how do we accomplish both of those tasks? Um, and that was an, a convenient sort of way to separate Leilun and um, Populous early on, um, was, you know, kind of making these more longer age wines versus the Populous brand, which was, you know, more like early to market. Uh, but also I think it afforded us an opportunity to, to then look into separating kind of our farming efforts and, and uh, versus, shining a light on some of these growers um, around California and, you know, mostly in Mendocino because that's where we're mostly working, but growers who truthfully um, have been underappreciated um, and were farming grapes in a region where maybe they were, you know, they were growing and operating in the shadow of Sonoma and Napa. And so the wines weren't necessarily as highly regarded, but there's just incredible farming happening up in Mendocino and, you know, generations of organic farmers just really farming their land respectfully. And I think, I guess we have a, you know, a healthy respect for the history of California viticulture and California winemaking. And, um, and to be able to kind of, you know, represent some of these growers out in the marketplace. I don't know, it's been really rewarding and really like, that's been a part of this, of this journey that we've been on that I think has, um, that again was, it was unintended initially. Um, but it was, but it's been, it's been one of the great like pleasures or joys that we've had of, of, you know, starting the populist brand. Yeah. It's funny. Like Larry Venturi, like that was the first time I had heard of like him as a farmer was through y'all. And then that would have been like what, 2017 or so. And then gradually I started to like, once I had seen it once, then I started to like come across it when I would read tech sheets for other wineries, other people that were buying fruit from him. But my kind of like my patient zero essentially was was y'all's wine for that. Awesome. Yeah, but he's been his vineyard. He has what Carignan's, Infidel, Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, he has grape. some Grenache, Syrah, um, a few other grapes. I'm that I can like you know or Primitivo versus say like Zinfandel. You know like different clonal selections. Um, do you guys have a take on that? What's what what's the vibe of uh, what of the difference between Primitivo and Zin or or Yeah, I mean I've heard different things from different farmers and different winemakers, you know. Um I think you might be talking to the wrong guys a little bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you know it's funny like we we have some Pinot vineyards down in Sonoma and like if you ask me what clone they are, which I know a lot of people when they're into Pinot are like super into clone. <laughs> it's like yeah. I don't know exactly, um, you know, because I think and that that kind of speaks to, you know, also where we landed on some of the stuff we're, we're growing and farming is, you know, they're not necessarily like the most obscure or like, you know, this Teraldigo Gris or, you know, whatever, something crazy. It's we were trying to find vineyards that are, you know, in an interesting climate with interesting soils and maybe have some age on them or something. And you know, that tends to be, you know, some of those big, more known varieties, you know, Merlot, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, etc. And I think, like, for us, 
what's important is really trying to dig in, get the soils alive and more healthy. Cause I'd rather have living soils with, you know, a basic or quote unquote basic um, variety. Those soils are what's giving the vibrancy and the freshness in the wine. Like I want you, when you taste our wines, the first thing to taste is, oh, there's energy, there's life, there's freshness. And then be like, oh, this tastes like Pinot, this tastes like Merlot, this tastes like whatever. And so that that should be really the first thing. And if we're not achieving that, then we're kind of missing the point a little bit. Yeah. For listeners at home that maybe don't know what you mean by like getting that soil alive, like what are the sorts of things that you're doing in the vineyard or when you're working with those farmers? What are the sorts of things that are going on kind of like in that soil with those vines to kind of like really showcase those grapes? Um, I would say so first and foremost... Um, every every vineyard that we farm, every grower that we work with um, is committed to farming organically. And, and I think that the core philosophy behind organic farming is that you're trying to increase diversity and increase the health and vitality of the soil that you're working with and the plants that you're working with. And so as opposed to, say, in a more conventional setting where perhaps you're putting down, say, Roundup or you're trying to eradicate or eliminate competition, you know, or limit or, or kill, essentially, essentially kill things um, to sort of hone in and focus in on just the crop that you're that you're growing. Um, what we're trying to do is kind of by increasing the diversity, we want to essentially bring more matter into the soil and more whether it's it's animal diversity, insect diversity, um, and and then different plant types that all contribute in their own way to creating a more a healthier ecosystem. And, uh, and so really, you know, when we're, that's why, you know, we, we farm vineyards and we work with growers who, who farm vineyards, but what we, but what we really always are looking for is we, we really say that we're farming soil, um, because what we're really trying to do is if we have healthy soil, then that's going to translate to the grapevine. And, um, you know, you know, a lot of like, say, again, speaking to Larry Venturi, some of the other growers we work with in Mendocino County, um, a lot of their vines were planted. You know, as Sean mentioned earlier, going back as a hundred years, hundred years ago, so you know, early 1920s. But a lot of them were planted just after World War II. So you're looking at a 1944 to 1950 range, and um, some of these vines are just so incredibly healthy. And the wines that come, the wines that come out of these out of these vineyards are more complex, and they have they just have years of history behind them. And uh, and so if you are if you're really working towards having a really healthy ecosystem, then you're going to have vines that can actually live to be 75 years old, 100 years old. And, and you can actually make these more complex and more developed wines, um, as opposed to vineyards that are much younger. And we, we feel like they tend to have a very kind of linear flavor profile. So they're very fruit forward um, and, and they're very kind of like uh, monochromatic, if you will. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's a function of them just being very, the vines being very young, they bear too much fruit too. And so you're losing some of that complexity too, just by having more fruit than, than, than you really feel like the vine should be providing. And so yeah. trying to strike that balance uh, between having like a lower yielding vineyard, but coming from a vineyard that has age uh, and history behind it. And so, you know, when we look to, when we're looking at this, you know, we're, when we talk about how, how do we work with soil, it can, it can come in any number of ways, um, whether it's compost additions, cover crop, doing cover cropping. Um, in our vineyards, in any given year, we're putting down seven to 10 different plant species in our cover crop mix to try to really increase that diversity and, and essentially give back to the soil because every year you're taking grapes out, um, but, and those grapes have nutrients in them, but um, how do you get those nutrients back into the soil? You know, and so that's where doing the cover cropping and the occasional compost additions uh, really helps to kind of keep that soil like um, by, like maintain the vitality of the, of the soil profile. I imagine there's a fair bit of competition for these, you know, sites, right? Like sourcing good fruit, I imagine has to be a bit of a challenge. And you had mentioned that Leiloon gradually, like as you've gone, you've been able to acquire more and more vineyards for yourselves to farm. But what's that relationship like trying to navigate, like getting fruit at a time when there's kind of this boom in smaller kind of negotiant model wineries? Like, how, how does that work? Um, that is definitely a challenge. But, you know, it's like it kind of it helps that 
you know, we've never once been late on a payment to our growers. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that goes a long way, to be honest. And, you know, we try to work with them because we're also growers. So we understand, you know, how challenging sometimes it can be, you know, working with sometimes winemakers can be very, you know, demanding or unreasonable or whatever. And so we're we really understand, you know, the position that the growers are in as well. It's like, oh, yeah, you're trying to pick grapes. Like sometimes it takes a few days to get a crew together to, to pick them. And like maybe it can't be this one specific day, but OK, like the day before, the day after, you know, something like that is going to be totally fine. And so we're, we try and really kind of come with the perspective of a grape grower when we're working with these um, with these, you know, the people we buy fruit from. And I think that that really helps, you know, our relationship. So usually if, you know, someone leaves a contract on that vineyard, oftentimes we're the first person they call and say, oh, hey, I got some more Zinfandel available. You know, do you want it? You know, and so that that's been good for us. Um, additionally, just I think Diego, he found a lot of these people. He looked up the CCOF. It's the like organic certification. And he called like every even if someone's growing organic strawberries, he's like, do you have any grapes? And they say, no, he's like, well, do you know anyone that has organic grapes? You know? And so, you know, he goes on his grussel out here. He's just <laughs> hustling, trying to For sure. acquire those grapes. Yeah. Without a doubt, you know? And so that, you know, that got us into some places. And then even, you know, we brought our friends and helped, help them to, you know, those growers to sell all their crops. So again, they're like, you know, really appreciate what we've done and, and help out, you know? And so I think just trying to be, you know, it's like a, you know, the golden rule kind of situation. And so we've been fortunate in that, um, you know, we haven't, I don't think struggled too much to try and find good quality grapes. Cause you know, I think they're out there um, as long as you're serious and, you know, you do good business and you're, you're respectful and everything like that. You know, it's funny you say that because I was talking to a former By the Glass podcast guest, uh, Ricky Taylor, who I know uh, y'all know, the guy yeah. planting the vineyard out in uh, Marfa. But he was telling me how, you know, challenging it is to find just good grapes in Texas that, you know, it's still very much seen as like a commodity crop. Uh, that finding an organically farmed vineyard is super challenging, which is why the price of fruit is super high. He said that's such a huge advantage in California is that there's just really great old vines that are farmed well um, compared to in Texas, like finding that is su super, super yeah, challenging. Yeah, and I would say um, that there, there's, definitely, there's definitely truth to that. Um, but, you know, we we want there to be more grapes available, more organic grapes available, you know, and, um, and I think that's been one of the great things about this current generation of winemakers um, that's come up, that's cropped up here over the last, you know, whether it's like 10 to 15 years or something like that. Um, winemakers who are, you know, uh, requiring that the vineyards are farmed organically. Uh, and, you know, it's still organic vineyards, you know, in total still make up a really small percentage of the surface in in California, um, like I'd say, it's on the order of less than five percent of vineyards that are farmed organically. Um, so it's a really small number. Um, and you know, we constantly like we you know we're banging that drum. Like we want more farmers to commit to it um, because we know it's better for the environment. And and then we're just convinced it makes better wine. And so that's hugely important. But I think another reason why we also wanted to to farm our own vineyards too, because you know almost every vineyard that we farm now we converted from conventional farming to organic farming practices. And, um, and so, you know, we feel like it's an opportunity for us to contribute to, to this organic farming movement. Um, but also then it also provides us with a source of grapes. If, yeah, let's say we are having a hard time finding um, a good source of organic grapes. Um, then, you know, we have some vineyards in our, in our, basically in our back pocket that we can work from. And then we also end up being a source of grapes for, um, other winemakers who want, who are, you know, wanting to promote organic farming. And, uh, and so we see it kind of as a win-win um, situation. And, um, and yeah, you know, I mean, anything, anything that we can do again to, um, to shine a light on these farmers who have been underrepresented in California and perhaps are having their grapes, you know, being purchased 
and no one was necessarily promoting them for their good farming work, but it was a, a good, it was a source of cheap grapes. I could go into a blend in a Napa Valley wine, even though the grapes came from Encino, you know, and all we want is we mm-hmm. want to say, no, like this is a great region and these are phenomenal farmers and look at, look at how great these wines are that are coming from. Hell yeah. I imagine it's got to be challenging though, like getting fruit from so many different parts of California. The two of you farm vineyards in Sonoma and Napa and you're sourcing fruit from Mendocino. You've sourced fruit from other parts of California as well. Um, how, how do you keep track of it all? Like your fruit that you're getting from various spots. And I bet that really comes to a head like right around harvest time, right? When everything's kind of getting ready to harvest at different times. Like how do you kind of like manage each of those different sites? I mean, we... uh uh, we, we tag team we tag team driving so basically i i drive for 12 hours and then i i bring the truck back and i sean yeah i high five sean and then give him the truck and then he drives so <laughs> is this the same ford f-350 that i saw you guys with back in 2018 or whatever yeah 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 450 450 450, 450. can't forget that one um, yeah but i think we've we've actually tried to be um you know in our in our wise old age, you know, is you know, it's funny. We we feel like we've been around the block a bit now. You know, um, try to focus on like specific regions and areas that we we like to work with. So yeah, even though we're getting stuff in Mendocino, you know, all the vineyards are really probably 15 minutes apart from one another. So when you make a trip up there, which is a couple hour drive, you can still sample and check on basically all the vineyards, you know, in, you know, an hour or two hours or so. And then similarly, you know, a little bit um, with the the vineyards are farming is a bit challenging, but those challenges are kind of um, more during the growing season. Um, and that's something that I think has been really good for us in terms of our, our winemaking too, is kind of when you're farming your own grapes, you know, I think a lot of times um, people, their winemakers think, oh, the harvest is like the craziest, most busy time of year. But for us, it's actually in, you know, April, May, and June are really the insane busy times of year because that's when you're trying to finish pruning. You're trying to get the vineyards mowed, the weeds kind of taken care of. You're suckering, which is removing the um, the new growth that isn't on the positions that you, you left for it. You're trying to spray the vineyards you know, again, organically to, you know, mitigate fungal pressures in the, in the vines. And so you're doing all this stuff is all happening at once. I mean, you know, you talk about being, you know, in the, the truck for a number of hours, you know, I'm, I'm usually just almost every day, you know, hauling a tractor from one site to the other, dropping it off, either Diego's doing it, our assistants, uh, you know, or a vineyard, someone in our, our vineyard team is doing the mowing that I'm just moving it to the next spot. And so then come harvest time, I think Diego and I are trying to, it's different than, you know, in Europe where, you know, their winery is right there on the state and, but really trying to bring that idea that the harvest time is a celebration and you get to really kind of see this, this culmination of all the hard work from the year. And then this like beautiful, magical transformation of this work and these grapes that you, you have into the wine and the beverage, you know, and so it kind of brings a different perspective and outlook on the harvest time. So it's like, even though, yeah, we're moving around and we're sampling, we already have such like this intimate knowledge of the vineyard sites, the grapes, you know, the condition they're in. So it's like, you've almost gone through it in your head, you know, while you're working during the year. So then the harvest season is just, okay, how do we get these grapes into the cellar? And that's- You're hosting a big block the party. No, the neighbors, they come by, you know, they bring their kids, they'll stomp on the grapes and stuff. It's a fun time. For for listeners that don't know, the winery is in a kind of suburban area. You, you wouldn't know that you're approaching this really cool dynamic winery as you're driving through, and then you just kind of like go in, and there's the winery right there. It's it's super cool to see. Definitely. One thing that I wanted to talk to y'all about uh, was kind of the mentorship program that y'all put in place. What kind of prompted that decision to create that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, this this has been a pretty uh, interesting year and one with a lot of um, introspection and hopefully some like realizing the shortcomings and other things that maybe we've taken for granted. Um, and especially in the wine industry, you know, there's a huge 
lack of diversity and a huge, you know, accessibility issue. And I think, um, you know, we have always kind of been like, well, we're, we're organic growers, we're natural winemakers, you know, we're trying to be positive for the environment. And like, you know, we kind of came to the realization that that's not enough, you know, um, that we need to really be more proactive in trying to help, you know, people that maybe otherwise don't feel welcome or accepted um, for whatever reason, you know, into the wine industry, because, you know, Diego and I, we got to where we are and we're doing what we're doing because, you know, we've reached out, you know, asking people for help, advice, and people have given that to us. And, you know, we've always been open to help people out if they come and ask, but we realized again that, you know, maybe people don't feel comfortable asking or don't even know they can ask or don't know what to ask or all this different stuff. So we wanted to just make it really explicitly apparent, like, hey, if you're interested in any aspect of the wine industry, shoot us an email. We'll set up a time to meet. We can talk, be it, you know, you're a consumer and you're interested in learning, okay, what's, how do I choose a bottle of wine or what is natural wine or what is, what are these things I'm tasting or whatever up to even, oh, I want to try and find an internship in in Europe or in California or in Texas or, or anywhere, you know, like how can we leverage some of our connections and, and things like that? And really a lot of times it's, you know, we're hoping to kind of give that push, you know, if someone's interested, like give them the confidence to kind of go for it and do it. And, you know, this is before we even set up the, the internship. I have a friend of mine, she met a wine grower at Brumaire, was talking to her and, you know, kind of offhandedly mentioned, oh, I'd love to come visit you or come do some work. And the grower said, yeah, you know, like, let's do it. But, you know, it was at a wine fair and, you know, you everyone's kind of jovial and, and whatnot. And so we were hanging out one day and she was kind of hemming and hawing, like, I don't know if I should write her. I don't know, whatever. And I was like, absolutely. I'll get you her, her email address. You should definitely write her like, I'm, if she said, yeah, like, I'm sure she'd love to take you, you know? And so after a couple emails, turns out she got the position, went to France, was there for three months, you know, had an amazing experience and really loved her time there. But it really took that extra little push because I think, you know, and I was in the same position too, when I was starting, it's like, Ooh, I don't know. I might get rejection. I might this. And again, like, yeah, cause the two of you guys met at UC Davis, you and Diego and then it was from UC Davis that you both spent time in Europe, right? That's correct. Yeah. So we, you know, got kind of the theoretical education at, at Davis and then wanted to go get some practical experience because this was back in 2012. And, you know, there were some people making natural wine in California, but, you know, we wanted to go to the, um, the whole, go to the stores, you know? Yeah. And so that was, yeah, again, really the idea was to kind of, just make it explicit, like, hey, if you're at all interested, reach out to us and we can do what we can to try and help facilitate um, in any way possible. I think that's the one thing that I've really learned is how much of this industry is really just relationship based, like and how experiential it is that you can learn something in a textbook or you can go to a class to learn something. But really, the most rewarding experiences you're going to have are time that you spend at a winery mm -hmm. or with a producer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to go spend time in Europe and and other regions around the world making wine was because the wine industry is just is such a special industry um, because it really is, it's built on passion and it's built on people who are, you know, I rarely haven't met a, a winemaker who's not passionate about what they're doing, you know, because I don't think you get into it without without that that love of of making wine but how many industries in the world are there where you can go work for your your heroes you know um or the, the people that you look up to and um and pick their brains about about how they make wine and you know i mean you like as you said you know you hit on it you can learn only so much from from reading a textbook and um but then at a certain point in time you just have to go do it but for us you know when you're trying to make wine with, you know, without any additives or, or, or using any yeasts or anything and trying to really make these wines that are, that are, you know, for all intents and purposes, like risky wine, wines to make, you know, it's, it's super important to, to be able to have someone that you can, that you can ask questions and, and ask them, like, how do you solve these problems when they arise, you know? And so going there, 
Um, you know, I worked for Didier Barral in Fougere. Uh, he makes the Leon Barral wines, and to you know, he's one of the, he's one of the people I look up to more than almost anyone else in in the winemaking world for farming and for his winemaking. And to be able to you know work there side by side with him and be able to ask him all these questions and you know get an honest answer from him and and actually see it in action um, was huge and deeply impactful for how how Sean and I are making wine now. And, um, and so to ha- be able to have those experiences and be able to share, and now to be in a situation where perhaps we can pay it forward and, and try to and, and contribute to that network of, of the history of winemaking and winemaking and, and be a resource in California for, uh, for the style of winemaking, it's, it's really important to us. Hell yeah. It's interesting because I think there's this like broader network, right, of like natural winemaking, right? And it's this like spirit of making wine that kind of transcends one specific region. And, you know, working with Zinfandel like you guys do, or working with some of the grapes that you guys have in Sonoma, Napa, um, parts of California, you're not necessarily getting that experience when you're in Beaujolais with Julie Balany, right, Shant? And Yeah, I definitely totally agree with that. And I'm, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at some of the conditions and stuff like in, you know, Beaujolais and Burgundy or France in general, it's, you know, it's cold and it's wet. And, you know, that's the exact opposite problem that we have in California. So it's, you can't be like, I'm going to take this principle and apply it to what I'm doing or this practice, I should say, you know, really, again, it was more this like, you know, the the term that they use is exigence. It's like dedication, like focus, you know, really like being thoughtful and mindful about the decisions and what you're doing and, and everything too. It's like, okay, well, how do I, how do I handle the grapes? How do I, you know, get them from here to there, you know, during the fermentation, do I pump it or do I do a punch down or, you know, are we going to barrel age it or put it in a tank, you know, and like really, again, being thoughtful with the goal being, again, preserving the energy, the vitality, that you've hopefully created in these soils and, and kind of maintaining as much of that as you can into the wine, you know, to make something that is, is compelling, energetic, you know, fresh, drinkable, deep, complex, you know, holding all these different things all at one time. And I think to add to that too, you know, I mean, you, you go to each of these places and, you know, if you can, you're not trying, you're not trying to mimic it or copy it, you know, note for note. But if you can take one or two pieces of information and then apply it to your situation, um, you can you can then achieve or try you know try to achieve what 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 your goals are you know and so you know each place that we've worked at um, and you know the list the list is actually when when you add it up I mean you know we've worked in we've worked in Italy France New Zealand obviously in California and uh, between me and Sean at, at multiple you know, wineries and in multiple regions. And to be able to kind of pull from that collection of experiences and then bring it back to California, that's, that's why we did it, you know? Um, that was part of the reason why I wanted, to, after we graduated from Davis, I was afraid that if I, that if I just went and got a job in California, that I would never leave. Um, and that I'd never have an opportunity to go make wine anywhere else. And so, um, you know, I made the decision. I said, okay, I'm going to commit two years of my life to trying to work for as many people as I can. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, or 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 like pinpoint, you know, what are the what are the regions or what am I what what am I trying to do? Um, and and to you know to try to like touch as many people as possible uh, in this process to then come back because I knew that once once I came back to California that I was probably here to stay and I would love to go work. A harvest somewhere else, but we kind of got this business that we're running now that <laughs> that necessitates can't just detail it for a little bit, take a little sabbatical. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, Sean, I'm taking a year off, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, that was part of it. Was you know maybe doing something that we wouldn't have a chance to do again, and uh, and those are yeah, like I said, I mean, those are just we 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 pull from those those experiences all the time when we're when we're making wine and. Every year we have a new challenge or we have a, you know, maybe we're working with a new variety or a new style, but we can always kind of say like, oh, hey, well, when you were there, like when you were working for a Valette, like what did he do? What did he do with his Chardonnay 
um, you know, in situations like this, you're like, oh yeah, we, you know, we pressed it a little harder or, you know, um, you know, or we put it into a tank for a little bit first to like, you know, get the fermentation going again. And so all these kind of like, they're, they're tricks, but they're also just techniques, you know, to, to make a better wine. And it was cool. Um, actually last January, um, we went back to France for the first time since we were living there in, uh, 12 and 13 to participate in some of the, the fairs there. Oh, were you at like Ladive, Penitence? Like... Yeah, Ladive, and then um, uh, Le Vendée Mes Amis down in Montpellier. And um, it was amazing to kind of reconnect with the people that we'd worked with, um, who, you know, we've we've talked to, you know, kind of maintained through phone calls and emails and stuff. But then to see them again, to stay with them again, to, you know, to taste their, their cellars, their wines, to see their vineyards, and then kind of reconnect after we have, you know, six, seven years of experience was a really cool for us to kind of reconnect again, but a little bit more like, but previously we were students and now we're kind of, you know, I don't know what level of, you know, craft grad students. Yeah. Grad students. Sure. <laughs> it's a, to reconnect and kind of, you know, have a little more confidence in ourselves, have a little bit of experience and in, in wines to share with them too, you know, it was really amazing to kind of, again, bring back, this inspiration, you know, and try and bring that inspiration back here into what we do, you know, and reinvigorate that a bit. That's always to me that that was the biggest takeaway from going to Ladiv for me in 2019 was just the camaraderie that existed between so many different winemakers, like to see winemakers from one part of the world, you know, interacting with winemakers from another part of the world, seeing that network was like beyond cool to me, uh, that kind of like relationship that existed between everyone. Yeah. And then to tie it back to the um, the mentor program that we've had, you know, I've been really amazed at how um, open, like everyone's been that I'm like, you know, I'll send an email to, to someone, a friend like or an importer. I'm like, hey, I have someone that's interested in connecting with some producers in Italy, you know. Oh, great. Yeah. Here's a list of emails. Here's everything. And um, or oh, hey, I have someone in your region, Santa Barbara area, like, can you bring him for a day or two of, of harvest stuff on, on a weekend or something? Oh, totally, you know, here's the thing. And so I think it's been really cool, like how positive, you know, everything's been, because again, I think it's it's all there. It's just like getting over that hump, that activation energy yeah, and, and helping connect people because like you, you just touched on, like that network and that connection is, I think what we really all love about, you know, the natural wine world, it's kind of, it's small, it's, it's fun, you know, it's um, exciting and it can seem daunting, but is, you know, actually quite welcoming if you have this, this kind of link into it. Totally. Well, anything else you guys want to let people know, like either wines coming up soon that people should be excited about? Yeah. Um, we've got some new bottlings coming out soon. They should hopefully, um, this should hopefully be hitting in you know March or April or so of the first of the 2020s, and uh, we'll have um, some of our these Leilun the blends that we have coming. The first one's the Astral blend coming out, which is this like in between rosé, red wine, orange wine, kind of this amalgam of all that. You know, it's really fun and kind of represents again that that fresher, lighter, you know, take on on the stuff that we're farming that we're really stoked on. What is the name for that? Because it seems like I'm seeing more of those out and about now where it's just kind of like a blend of a lot of different things. Like is, what do you guys call that? The, the red, white, oh, rosé, oh, oh, orange oh. combo, combo platter. What's the, uh, I don't know. Delicious. Maybe, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, uh, Cuvée delicioso. I mean, you know what I, I think, sorry, Diego, yeah. let me just go real quick is I think, you know, one one for sure thing we learned, um, or I learned when I was working with the people I worked with in France was, you know, you got to make the wine that you want to drink. Like you got to be happy with how you farm it, how you make it and everything. And so, you know, that's also kind of why we have this range of wines. We make some serious wines like, okay, I'm going to have like roast leg of lamb or something. Like I'm going to want a, you know, a big hearty Carignan or a big boy. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I don't necessarily want to drink that wine every day, just like I don't necessarily want to eat a leg of lamb every day either, you know, and so. Speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> um, 
but so we started kind of making as we got more surface also making these kind of lighter fresher wines that it's like they're they're really easy to drink really fresh really delicious but still have a lot of depth and are compelling like if you want to get into it you know what i mean and so that was really kind of where we're coming from is like you know it's something that has like a lot of depth but is still super drinkable um but yeah what do you call it i don't, I don't know yeah delicious drinkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny because you make a wine that is like 90% white wine and you put like 10% red wine in and all of a sudden it's like a light red, you know? So uh, <laughs> so it seems a little strange to call like a wine a light red wine when it's when it like if you make a wine say that's all, almost all white. But in, in terms of color, that's how it ends up, um, you know, it ends up appearing. And I but that's I, again, it is one of the really fun parts of of this sort of uh movement that's happening in wine right now which is that you can you can make these these blends that maybe break some of the norms um but then it ends up resulting in something that's really great and tastes tastes amazing and maybe pairs differently um with with different types of food as a result of it being a blend of different different you know grape varieties well thank you all so much for taking the time to chat if people want to learn more about uh populous and leilun where on the uh interwebs or social media can they find you um we're at leilun wine and it's spelled l-e-s-l-u-n-e-s -E wine um you can go there for very very sporadic uh updates <laughs> um, we have a, a mailing list that also gets sporadic updates and a website that is um uh you know occasionally updated <laughs> so yeah. cool guys thank you again really appreciate it all right thank thanks you. And that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Shant and Diego's wines uh, can be bought online if you're part of their wine club. And if you're here in Texas and you're listening, their wines are all over the place. You can find them at most good bottle shops. Uh, one wine that I particularly want to shout out that we didn't talk about in the episode is their Texian wine, which they donate the proceeds of that particular red wine to Southern Smoke, which is a nonprofit here in Houston that benefits the hospitality community. So definitely look into that. Uh, the wines are distributed through David Mayfield Selections, so you can always find it that way as well. Uh, and if you want to find more episodes of By the Glass, smash that subscribe button, that follow button. We're on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Audible, all of the places that you listen to your audio content. Not on YouTube. I don't know. Not 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 a priority, I guess, for me. But uh, seriously, listen to the other episodes. Give it five stars so that more people can find the show. Um, and keep drinking good wine, and we'll talk soon. See ya.